Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We are joined today by R.R. Reno. That's R-E-N-O for those of you taking notes. Uh, He is the author of many things and editor too. Uh, One of the books include Return of the Strong Gods and Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. He has a new book out entitled The End of Interpretation, Reclaiming Reclaiming the Priority of Ecclesial Exegesis. Uh, Welcome, Editor-in-Chief Reno. Hey, great to be with you, Mark. Doctor, Professor, Editor in Chief Reno. So I just, you every time I read that subtitle, reclaiming that priority of ecclesia. How did I let ecclesial in there? Well, I thought I would be a better editor. I would have put churchly or something a little bit more accessible. Well, uh, it, 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 it's a signal. This <laughs> is this is a book that is that is going to to dive deep into into strong questions of interpretation, right, uh, and hermeneutics. You begin, actually, with Cardinal Ratzinger in 1988, proclaiming, quote, biblical interpretation in crisis. What was the crisis at that time? You know, he came of age, he he was educated and came of age when the Catholic Church, um, Catholic uh, academics really took on the historical critical project. So it had been a crisis really in Western church affairs, that what the historical scholars said the Bible really taught, and what uh, classic historical Christian doctrine taught, they seemed out of sync. Um, And many historical scholars insisted that they were out of sync and that the church had to revise um, its own teaching to better reflect the historical reality of of the Bible. And so Ratzinger identified this, this crisis, um, that the best minds in biblical studies uh, were not, um, they were not sort of pulling in the direction of the theological teachings of the church. And did he offer uh, a way out? In, maybe in that lecture, did he, did he signal uh, a way through the crisis? Uh, no, I mean, he called for, I mean, he was convinced that the historical truth of the matter and the church's teaching were fundamentally in sync. And I think it brought to be brought into a kind of synthesis. And so it wasn't so much in that lecture, but rather in his two-volume Jesus of Nazareth, uh, where he he, in a very in a very subtle way, uses both theological sources and 20th century historical critical 
um, sources to, to portray Jesus in a way that he thought was academically um, uh, respectable and accorded with uh, traditional understanding of who Jesus of Nazareth was. This, this is a very crude question, but for someone like me who, who wasn't theologically trained at all, what was or is historical criticism? It sounds like a very, uh, sounds like a very, very basic, neutral term. Uh, what, what was it? The uh, scholars have known for centuries that um, the manuscript traditions uh, that have give us the Bible in its current form, and don't forget, it wasn't until the invention of printing press that you got, if you will, standard editions. Every manuscript was written by um, by a monk, and errors were introduced. And so there was something called lower criticism. And this was a scholarly enterprise of trying to come up with the most accurate, um, the most accurate uh, Greek and Hebrew version of the Bible. But by the time you get to the 18th century, um, late 18th century. There is a growing um, body of thinking trying to uh, trying to recognizing that what the Bible meant when it was written um, and what it means now are not necessarily the same thing, and also a greater awareness that that the presumptive this was especially the case in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which are a tradition composed by Moses, delivered by um, God by divine inspiration to Moses. And, you know, scholars noticed that there were different strands, especially different names for God, Elohim, God, versus Adonai, you know, uh, um, the Tetragrammaton, um, the divine name, which gets translated uh, as Lord in our Bibles. Um, so there was an awareness that different names for God were being used, different foci. There are two different accounts of uh, the creation of man in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And so this led to the emergence of something called higher criticism, which is a attempt to reconstruct the historical, the historical conditions under which the Bible was composed. And you can see how this has a natural, uh, this, this puts academic scholarship on a collision course with any kind of doctrine of inspiration. Because it need not be the case, because I've always thought that doctrine of inspiration is agnostic with respect to how God inspires the contents of the Bible. It doesn't have to be direct inspiration. It could be a providential governance of the composition and editorial processes that the historical scholars can do such a good job parsing for us. But the historical critical scholar is concerned with this reconstruction of historical circumstances under which the Bible is composed. And this is a very different enterprise from trying to figure out what the Bible says, if you will, um, in a theological frame of reference. So that's the crisis. The, the kinds of questions that modern historical scholars bring their scholarship. It's not the same kinds of questions that I bring as a believer. Right. I hope that wasn't too... It's actually kind of a thorny um, uh, question. 
is historical criticism. It's not altogether easy to explain. No, and and, and there's there you know there is a there there's a big context with the, this development of historicist thinking in the 18th century and the idea of primitive studying uh, sort of the development of anthropology during this crude anthropology during those years and a hermeneutical, the hermeneutical problem that it... Well, so it's 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 particularly acute with respect to the Old Testament as compared to the New Testament, but with respect to the Old Testament, if you're an historian, you want to know what the text meant to its original audience, perhaps. Uh, And so you you hypothesize or you create a construct called ancient Israelite religion. And the Old Testament is about or teaches us what ancient Israelite religion was. And uh, and this is a this is a different enterprise, it seems to me, from uh, asking, you know, what the living word of God says, is is saying in the present. Right. Yeah, but another basic question, and, and this comes up in, in Ratzinger as you discuss it, what is the, quote, dualism between exegesis and theology? The, you know, Karl Rahner was perhaps the most extreme. In his systematic theology, I think, uh, uh, um, uh, oh, what's the famous lecture class he gave foundations of Christian faith, I think. And uh, he says in the beginning that uh, um, theologians are only permitted to use um, uh, the solid um, the solid results of historical criticism. And so, in effect, the theologian turns the Bible over to a historical scholar, and the historical scholar then has, if you will, um, all, the, all the rights and privileges of telling us what the Bible actually says. And then Rahner turns around. It turns out he doesn't use the Bible really very much at all in his own uh, theology uh, because it's become the province of these historical scholars. So that's the dualism. You know, I get my PhD in theology. I, you know, um, uh, perichoresis as a concept and doctrine of Trinity. And I write my dissertation on the sort of perichoretic imagination of fourth century Christianity. And meanwhile, my colleague, with no reference to the Bible at all, and meanwhile, my fellow grad student in New Testament writes something on, you know, the, the, um, you know, the social context of Second Corinthians and with no reference to the history of theology at all. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of bifurcation is what Ratzinger saw as that was that's the way he described the crisis. Um, the best minds in biblical studies were, as I said, just asking questions that were completely different from the, what the best minds in theology were asking. Yeah, P- people who who've read your your, your public square, as it, your your giving your talks, your discussion of current events, politics, and 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 our, our religious situation today, may not know your long experience with biblical commentary uh rusty what was and you and you talk about that what was the brazos theological commentary on the bible series well i would be a little cautionary here i think i suffer as do so many theologians of um 
of, of really not having a deep knowledge of the Bible. I certainly have a lot better knowledge now having worked on that series. But it was a commentary series that we launched uh, back in the early aughts, maybe even the late 1990s. No, I think it was the early aughts, maybe 03, 04. And the idea was there's a lot of talk about theological exegesis, scapegoats around theological exegesis. The term got bandied about quite a bit. But, like, you know, show me the money, you know. <laughs> show, you know, the Eddie Murphy uh, line. Show me the theological exegesis. And I just think that you can debate concepts, but it's very helpful to sort of try to do it. And in the doing of it, you learn a lot more about what so-called theological exegesis is than you do by speculating in, in some abstract way. So the series got going. Uh, Yaroslav Pelikan did the first commentary that we published. It was on the Book of Acts. And then there's been about 30 volumes that have come out in the last 15 years. Resist junk food journalism. That is the clarion call of the First Things 2022 year-end campaign. We're against shrill moralizing, overwrought clickbait, and limp prose. Such writing might taste good in the moment, but ultimately it fails to satisfy. Instead, we invite you to a sumptuous intellectual and spiritual and moral feast. Essays, reviews, and poems written by the leading lights of religious thought, complemented by other media such as the podcast you are listening to now. This is a better way. Join us to strengthen the vital, nourishing work of First Things by making your tax-deductible gift to the 2022 year-end campaign today at firstthings.com backslash campaign. Thank you. The, you, you say that the act of theological interpretation begins not with a thesis or a premise, really, but properly with, quote, trust in the scriptural genesis and biblical genius of the church's traditions. Now, I imagine that the, the historical critics are going to trust, trust, that, that doesn't sound very critical, it doesn't sound very intellectual or, or, or academic, or even disciplinarily responsible. What, what is your, what's your defense? Every act of interpretation presupposes what I call a horizon of truth. Uh, so um, if you're a feminist interpreter of literature, you you presuppose the, the kind of feminist interpretation of, of social reality. And then your readings of Shakespeare or your readings of Milton or what have you will be, will be informed by that. So you've got to work back and forth between what you presume to be true about the human condition and what the text says. And this is true even if you think that the text is completely wrong. So I give the example in the book of having a seminar on the protocols of the elders of Zion. And you as a, I can imagine, uh, a, I can imagine a, a professor teaching such a class. It is a really interesting episode in modern propaganda and certainly a signal instance of modern antisemitism. played a very powerful role in the rise of modern antisemitism uh, and so on. So you could imagine teaching that class but you're going to teach it to students. You're going to try to, you're not teaching students what's false. You're going to teach students to see what's true about the protocols of the elders of Zion. What is true? Well, we got to do, maybe we're going to read a, a book on propaganda as a social phenomenon. 
the students can see how it is true that the protocol worked uh, in that way. Or maybe a book on anti-Semitism or a, something about, I think it, this was written by Russian, the Russian Secret Service, the Tsarist Secret Service. So there's all kinds of interesting questions about like who actually wrote it. And all those questions are a pursuit of truth. Um, and they're all, you cannot pursue truth without having some orienting horizon that lets you think about how the false statements of the protocols of Elder Zion fit with what is in fact true. So the, the, the great um, masters of suspicion, you know, Freud, Nietzsche, um, and, and Marx, they had, of course, their own horizon. They had things that they trusted in that were the fundamental deepest truth. What they were suspicious of were the traditional horizons of truth. Yeah. The traditional, uh, the traditional objects are, uh, of trust. And they proposed new and much more, if you will, um, I would always think of all three of those masters of suspicion think that like traditional society thinks the most true things are above. Uh, but we, the masters of suspicion, know that the truest things are below. Hmm. The DNA, will to power, sexual instinct, um, hmm. uh, you know, the the uh, machinations of the capitalist class, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know, Rusty, our colleagues, our academic colleagues, they wouldn't like the word trust. I mean, I, I you're right. They they would prefer the word. Well, I have a theory, but they wouldn't want to they, they wouldn't want to cast their commitment in any, any, any faith trust kind, kind of terms. You, you just don't That's see that. That's why they have so little interesting to say. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, if you, the ambition that you bring to interpretation will uh, be fruitful. It, it can lead you astray. And so the, you could say bold things that turn out to be false. But, but uh, you know, uh, the, the, Trust is in is in the sort of as I say this horizon uh, through which you interpret the text, and so you know the example I I give is um you know I I I go into this in great detail in the book uh, Genesis one the creation area in the beginning God created heaven and earth and <clears throat> a lot is in that phrase in the beginning as a is it temporal like when God began to create, or is it ex nihilo, out of nothing? Um, and so I, I, I learned this tremendous amount because in, I couldn't presume that I knew the right answer to this. And so I had to bring it into connection. How could this be? How can I read the text in a way that, that is actually in accordance with uh, the classical Christian view? Because um, as I say, the trust is that Bible, the church is a creature of the Bible, and so what the Bible says and what the church teaches are one and the same. You, you call that the presumption of accordance. Yes, the presumption of accordance. Maybe not one and the same, because obviously they're different. The Bible doesn't have the word famously in the Nicene Creed, the word homoousion, which was a neologism coined to try to capture the, the, the what what the what the Nicene Chalcedonian um, tradition regards as the, the as the divinity of Christ, that He is of one substance with the Father, and uh, 
that's not in the Bible. So they don't say the same thing, but they're in accordance. Yeah. And so that you can bring them into some kind of harmony. And that, I'd say, I'd say that is the definition of the theological exegesis. Whatever gets you to a point where you are confident, or more, more confident, that what the Bible says and what the church teaches are, are the same, then the more it is theological exegesis. And this can be done with historical methods. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, um, in the, in the book of Genesis, in the Pentateuch, probably there's a, there is a P tradition and a, and a, and a, um, a, uh, uh the elephant, Elohists tradition, you know, that you, you have the Yahwist, the J and the P, uh, the priestly uses the Elohim word. And I could, I came to see that, that you could actually use that historical material to think through, uh, Genesis 1 as talking about in the beginning, like out of the, if you will, out of the mind of God, uh, was created, dot, dot, dot. We don't have to look at the argument. It's, uh, it's kind of, as most arguments are, probably too subtle by half. Uh, you, you quote uh, Ellen Davis uh, uh, 25 years ago stating that we must, quote, learn again to read and teach the Bible confessionally. What is a confessional reading going to, going to do or give us? Well, that was the one reason I wrote the book is because it's not clear what that means. And biblical scholars get very nervous, like you're going to impose, you know, the Augsburg Confession, the Lutheran Confession, you're going to impose the Nicene Creed on the Bible, you're going to impose the Westminster Confession, the Calvinist one, um, and so on and so forth. And I say, no, no, calm down. What Ellen was saying, and I think this is what I try to get at, is this principle of accordance. You need to recover a reading of the Bible that tries to show how what the church has taught is in fact what the Bible teaches. That's confessional reading. And, uh, you know, you don't always succeed. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a stretch. Uh, one of the, the early church fathers were acutely aware of this problem in many texts in the Old Testament that are, um, very difficult to understand. Like, how could they, how could any person profit spiritually from reading about the genocide and the Amalekites and all that kind of stuff. And so they adopted what's called the allegorical method of interpretation, where what was being conveyed here were not strictly literal truths, but rather spiritual truths. Um, that when the Israelites smashed the head of the children of their enemies on the rocks, uh, or as he said, uh, what this really refers to is, is to... Um, to root out and and destroy vice within oneself, and that a lot of people can find that very unsatisfying. You're not taking the text seriously, etc., etc., etc. And I don't want to discount people's suspicions about allegory, but I think for a confessional reader of the Bible, it, it, it becomes almost inevitable uh, this allegorical thing. And again, it's not even remotely inconsistent with the doctrine of inspiration, and it's not inconsistent with arguing that historical events described actually happened, but rather it's an argument about what God intended by 
inspiring the authors to record those events or to depict them in the way that he does. Side question, Rusty. Someone once told me many years ago that the majority of professors in theology departments in secular universities don't don't believe in God. Not 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 only that they they don't belong to any church and regular attendance, but they actually don't really believe in any in in any in the God that they teach, the, the, the text that they teach. Is that, is that true? Oh, I don't know. I don't speculate about what people do and don't believe. It is the case, however, that in the 1960s, um, there emerged a discipline called religious studies. And religious studies, it, it, its ambition is to teach from a non-confessional perspective, that is to say, with academic objectivity, scare quotes around objectivity. Um, my friend Michael Legospi wrote very, uh, a very nice piece about um, contemporary, about John Collins with the book, had a book on biblical interpretation. And, and Michael observed that it was no longer historical criticism, that this, it, instead it's academic criticism. Hmm. And academic criticism, because you're feminist, post-colonialist, and on and on and on, these aren't historical. Hmm. But it's academic insofar as it's not theological. So any method of interpretation is acceptable as long as it's not uh, theological, not confessional. Hmm. Uh, because that, that, and that's what feeds this sense that the people teaching theology don't believe in it because they've been trained to teach it in, in such a way uh, that it doesn't draw upon the truth claims of the Christian tradition itself. You know, like like Robert Wilkin, our our colleague, uh, distinguished colleague, you really like Origen. What is so great about him? Why why do you like him so much? Oh, he was a universal genius of the early church, without a doubt. He was the most the most erudite. A biblical interpreter in the early church. The way that we read the Bible owes a great deal to Origen. He, he lectured on almost every book on the Bible and uh, probably had it all memorized. Hmm. Uh, I mean, maybe not all the Bible memorized, but um, and this was true for the church fathers broadly, but him perhaps was peerless in this regard. So his ability to move across the text is really quite extraordinary um, as he draws connections between various parts of, of the Bible. So that's as a biblical reader, but probably, you know, I, I cut my teeth in systematic theology, ethics and systematic theology. And Origen, I could, he was the first systematic theologian in the Christian tradition. What I mean by that is that he, he reframed Neoplatonism, which was, he was trained, he was, uh, uh, he was, I think, a student of Plotinus's, uh, and, uh, or maybe he and Plotinus were both students of, um, uh, together in the Neoplatonic school in Alexandria. But be that as it may, he took what was the most powerful sort of intellectual system, which combines, which was 
it was scientific in the modern sense of the world, in the sense that it had a theory of the origin of all reality, just like we have scientific theories about the Big Bang and so on, or doctrine of evolution that we have in our time. But anyway, he took all that stuff and he recast it in such a way that it was um, a way to expound the biblical narrative so that creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Uh, uh, you know, you, the, in Neoplatonism, you have emanation and return. And, uh, and for a Platonist, you know, the, the really real is the soul or the idea, the, the noose. Uh, and the, 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 our embodiment is a kind of um, bad fate. And Origen, as a Christian, could never say that because God creates and calls it good. Mm. And so he had this wonderful meditation on the fact that because we have bodies, God can influence us without coercing our wills. So our body, for, for a Greek, the fact that we have a body is a curse because it's what is the source of our suffering. We get sick, we're hungry, we die. Origen said, ah, this is actually a blessing because in suffering, we turn from the affairs of this world and we look up towards, towards the divine. So God can draw us to himself through bodily suffering. Um, otherwise, God would have to, if you will, coerce our wills to force us to come to him. Anyway, fantastic. Just really to read that and sort of see him turn Neoplatonism inside out. It's really pretty astounding. The book is The End of Interpretation, Reclaiming the Priority of Ecclesial Exegesis. Rusty Renell, thank you for joining us. Great to be on the podcast, Mark. Thanks. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 332 2930.